We are this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 to chapter 11, verse 1. And uh, boy, we've, we've come a long way. Today, this passage is the closing summary, you can think of it that way, of what began in chapter 8, verse 1. So in chapter 8, verse 1, if you've been here for the past, you know, month or so, and you remember, uh, it began with the Corinthians asking Paul or or discussing with him in this letter uh, about going to the temples of foreign gods in order to eat a meal there. Um, This was a huge part of society in Corinth. It was kind of like the restaurant of the day when somebody would invite you to the temple of their God because they were offering sacrifice to their God for whatever reason, and it involved sacrificing an animal and then eating that animal there together, and they would invite their friends, their family, and they would invite Christians would inevitably get invited to this as well, just by living in Corinth. And uh, just to give a review again, and and I just feel like we just need to keep getting oriented about what's going on here. But in chapter 8, Paul talked about giving up your rights, that even though in that temple you know that that God is not a real God, there's no God except the Lord, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that it's just meat. Even though it was sacrificed to Bacchus or Artemis or or Jupiter or Aphrodite, it doesn't matter. It's just meat. Why can't I go, Paul, and just eat? This is a huge part of my social life. And Paul says, no, no. Even though it's just meat, other Christians who are so deeply entwined in idolatry, who may struggle with this, who may still be tempted to fall back into idolatry, if they see you eating in that temple they may be emboldened or encouraged to go to the temple as well and to eat because you're doing it. Oh, it must be okay. I'll go do it. And, but they, they, they end up falling back into idolatry because they were still struggling with that. So Paul says, even though those gods are not real, even though it's just meat, don't go for the sake of your brother or your sister who may see you and they may be stumbled by that. And then in chapter nine, Paul gives an example. He says, hey, I walk the talk as well myself. After all, I'm I'm the apostle who planted the church here in Corinth. You guys are all here because of God's work through me, and I'm entitled to financial support from you guys, but I don't take any of it because I don't want anything to get in the way of the gospel being preached here in Corinth. And apparently there might have been people who thought that the gospel was about money, and Paul didn't want that to get in the way. So he's saying, look, I, I have a right to that, but I lay down my rights for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of other people. I walk the talk. And then in chapter 10, Paul gets into another reason not to go to the temple. And he says, hey, it's not just about your brother or your sister seeing you and following you into the temple, okay? Let's let's get down to the nitty-gritty here. Just, it is a non-starter from the beginning because when you are in that temple, You need to be aware of the spiritual reality that is taking place around you and the fact that this, in this sacrifice to these other gods, even though it's just meat, there are demons involved in this. 
There is a spiritual realm that you are not aware of or apparently that you don't seem to be aware of. You think that taking communion, having getting, gotten baptized, that that will protect you like some magic shield and from eating together with demons. And he says, no, no, no. Remove yourself from that situation. You don't understand how influenced you are getting by being in that spiritual environment. That's, that's what's going on in chapters 8, 9, and 10. And today here, at the end of chapter 10, Paul is kind of wrapping all of this up. He's summarizing, but he's also expanding a little bit as well. He's covering some new ground here, which we'll see. So it's a short passage, so I'm just going to read the whole thing first, and then we'll come back and go through it again. So he says this, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So here, as we get back to the top here in, in verse 23, um, there is a saying that we've read before in chapter 6. All things are lawful. This was a, a slogan of the Corinthian church. All things are lawful. And, and what this was really pointing to was the fact that now in Christ, the church, the people of God, no longer live under the Mosaic law. Under the law that we see in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, all of those laws from the Old Testament, Jesus, when he came through his life, he fulfilled the law, and we no longer need to keep the law. So there was a saying, all things are lawful. We're no longer bound by the Old Testament Mosaic law. We don't need to keep that anymore. And Paul would absolutely agree with that, that we no longer need to live under the law. That is totally true. That's why he would preach such radical things, like you don't need to get circumcised. You don't need to eat kosher. You don't need to keep special holidays and days and new moons and Sabbaths and things like that because all of that Old Testament law has been fulfilled in Christ. That is absolutely true, but, but that doesn't mean that all things are helpful and it doesn't mean that all things build up. See, what Paul is saying is that, yes, as Christians, 
all of those 600 and something laws of the Old Testament, we don't need to keep anymore. Hallelujah. Thank God. Thank God. Wow, what a burden off my back. But that doesn't mean that we do whatever we want because we still need to be thinking about what is helpful and what is good for building up those around us. He says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Friends, there are, there are, there are so many things that, that we are allowed to do. That's what the Corinthians are saying. There's no more law upon us. We can do whatever we want. But Paul says that doesn't mean everything is helpful. You can do a lot of things in life. You can wear socks with sandals, but that's not going to help anybody, right? <laughs> Just because you can do it doesn't necessarily mean you should do it. We, under, we understand that. Paul is saying that just because the law is done, it doesn't mean, woo, I do whatever I want because there's another law that's been there all the, time, the entire time. The law of being helpful, the law of being, building up, the law of doing good to our neighbors. You see, when, when Jesus was questioned by the Pharisees about the law, and one of them asked him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What, what is Jesus saying? It, look, it's really interesting here, isn't it? That out of all of those Old Testament laws, Jesus is saying the greatest of those laws of the Old Testament was to love God with all of your being and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that was the purpose of the entire Old Testament law. When you kept the law, that was the goal of it, to help you love God and to help you love those around you. Guess what? Even though I came and I fulfilled the law, the same law of love is still there. That doesn't change. That's universal to love God and to love your neighbor. Now it looks different. Now it doesn't involve animal sacrifice. It doesn't involve, you know, a physical city of Jerusalem or a physical land of Palestine and Canaan. Or it doesn't involve those things, but the law of love is still there. So just because this Old Testament law is passed, we still need to be thinking about how can I be helpful towards my neighbor? How can I build those around me up and not tear them down? Because that never changes. The law of love. The law of love is still there. Now, so that, that's kind of, um, that's, it's interesting because in verse 25, as we continue on, it seems like Paul is saying something very different from verses 23 to 24. So 23 to 24, he talks about, okay, love means we still care about those around us, even if there's no Old Testament law. We still need to care about those around us. But then he goes and he says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It seems like he's uh, now switching things around and saying, oh, go eat whatever you want. Now, that's kind of strange, right? And, and it's also kind of strange because didn't you, Paul, just in chapter 8, say 
don't go into the temple and eat this food. What is, what is happening here? Now, this is what I meant by Paul kind of expanding and covering some new ground here. What is Paul talking about here? In, in verse 25, he's not talking about going into the temple physically and eating food there that's been sacrificed to an idol. That he said, don't do. The demons are there. There's a spiritual effect. There's something going on there that you're not aware of. Don't go into that place. What he's talking about in verse 25 actually is when you just go shopping, that's what he's talking about. Not in the temple, when you go shopping. When you go to your local supermarket or or for them to their butcher, to their meat markets, and they go and they buy meat to cook at home. Now, in Corinth, because of how many temples there were, and these temples were all, as far as I know, sacrificing animals, and, and the people would eat, and the priests would eat, they would have a lot of excess meat, and the temples would have their own butcher shops. They would sell this meat, the excess, to fund their temple. And this meat would oftentimes end up in just random general marketplaces and, 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 and the, uh, the food stalls around Corinth. So there was no way to know if what you were buying was sacrificed to a god, or at least it was very difficult to know this. You should probably assume that any piece of meat that you buy in your local market has been sacrificed to an idol. Now, what Paul is saying is, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Go ahead, buy the meat, grill it up, and eat it with a joyful heart. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything in this world belongs to God. It's okay. That meat that you're eating, even though it went through that temple, God made that cow, and you can receive it with thanksgiving and joy in your heart. It's totally fine. You're no longer in the temple. You bought it. You brought it home. You eat it. It's okay. You can go ahead and do that. So you want to go to a a kosher deli? No problem. Go. You want to go to halal, guys? No problem. Go. Doesn't matter. Jewish food ritual preparations, Muslim food ritual preparations, go and eat it and enjoy. I know you guys like your halal guys. Eat it with a clean conscience, okay? No big deal. I mean, Jesus, he said this in the Gospels. He said, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. In, in the life and the ministry of Jesus. He declared all foods clean. Right? There is no more Old Testament food law. So based on this, Paul's saying, don't worry. Go ahead into the market and buy whatever you want. Now, in verse 27, he says, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is said before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So now what Paul's saying here is not only when you buy that food, that meat, and you bring it home and you eat it, that's totally fine. But even if a friend of yours who is a, is a pagan, he's a worshiper of uh, Bacchus, Aphrodite, whatever, he, he doesn't share our faith. If he were to invite you into his home for dinner, and there's a very high probability that the meat that he bought was at one point sacrificed to an idol, especially if he's trying to support his local temple, don't worry about that. Eat it. No big deal. Whatever he puts before you, just go ahead and eat. Why? Because once again, they're not in the temple. 
They're in a non-believer's home, but that's okay. That's not the temple. There is a, a separation there that Paul says is fine. Let's go ahead into that home and eat. So here, Paul is, Paul is once again reaffirming, strengthening what he said earlier, that yes, we know, we have this knowledge that those gods are not real, that this is just food. Go ahead and eat. So again, these things seem kind of contradictory, right? 23 and 24. We need to love our brothers and sisters. We can't just think about our own freedom, what we have a right to do. We need to think about them. But then Paul says, go on and eat. Go buy that meat. It doesn't matter. Well, well how do these things intertwine? How do these things work out together? Well, here in verse 28, this is where we see the principle of love kicking in. But, this is a big but, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. So what's the situation here? What's going on? You're, you're at this dinner table, right? At your, your friend's home, and he's, he's not a Christian. He's a worshiper of some other God. He invited you over for dinner, and then somebody says, hey, Ulysses, that prime rib over there, that was offered to Bacchus, by the way. That over there. Now, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of theological discussion and debate over who it is that's saying this. Is it the host saying this, the pagan host? Is it um, another pagan guest? Is it a Christian who's saying this? There's a lot of debate and discussion about this. I, I personally think that it is another Christian that is saying this. So basically, you're there at this meal, and there's another Christian there, and he sees that prime rib comes out, and he says, Ulysses. Don't eat that prime rib. I saw Bob this afternoon walking by the temple of Bacchus and he went to the butcher shop in the back and he bought two cuts of prime rib. This, is, this has got to be it. It's real fresh. It looks real good. This is what he bought earlier. Don't, 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 don't eat it. Now, so what Paul's saying here is this thing. We know the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. There's nothing wrong with you eating that meat. But, but, if that brother or that sister who pointed this out to you, if it bothers their conscience, if they think that there's something wrong with that, don't eat it. Don't do it. I know he just ruined dinner for you. I'm just, I just feel like vegetables tonight. I'm doing a cleanse. Right? As tears roll down your eyes, right? I know he ruined dinner for you, but don't do it. Don't eat it. Why? Because this is the law of love at work. This is the law of love at work. If it's in the temple, don't do it because the demons are there. Don't do it because you may, you may bring your brother or sister into that place and they may fall. But this principle still applies if you're in someone's home, not even in the temple. If your brother or sister would be bothered, if their conscience would be bothered by what you're doing, refrain from that. Don't do it. This is what Paul means by all things are lawful. Sure, you could eat it. It's, it's, it. The Lord made that cow. But not all things are helpful. Not all things are good for building up. You're not going to help your brother. You're not going to build up your brother by doing this. 
It's not loving to stumble him and hurt his conscience. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, go home hungry for the sake of your brother or your sister. Now, he goes on here in the second half of verse 29, and this is really confusing too. And this seems really contradictory as well. He says, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Doesn't that sound like the exact opposite of what he's saying? Why should I let how he feels, his conscience, restrict or take away my freedom? It sounds like the reverse. What, Paul, what are you saying here? What's going on? Verse 32, if I partake with thankfulness, God, thank you for this prime rib. Oh, it looks so good. It looks so good. Why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. Hey, man, I'm giving thanks for the steak. Leave me alone. <laughs> Leave me alone. You eat the salad, you let me eat the steak. Why are you denouncing me? That's what it sounds like Paul is saying. Paul, what's going on here? What do you mean by this? And again, there is... Um, there's a lot of, that's been written about this and different views as well. But I, I, I think at the end of the day, what Paul is saying here is, he's saying, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. That's what Paul is saying here. Anthony Thistleton, the theologian, he said this about this passage. Paul's meaning on this basis would be, what would be the advantage of my exercising my freedom if I thereby suffer defamation of character, if it genuinely does not matter whether I eat or not, why choose the path that raises unnecessary difficulties? What is the point of freedom if I cannot choose not to cause problems? You see, you see what he, he's saying here? He, it seemed, I think what Paul is saying here is like, why... Why would I want to eat and give thanks to God for this meal, but have my brother or my sister denounce me? Is, is that a good thing? Is this a good situation to be in? So I'm going to take this steak in front of me. Oh, God, thank you so much. He gave me the, the fatty portions. Oh, medium rare, just the way that I like it. It's a perfectly delicious, and, and you're eating it, and you're thanking God. And your brother next to you, in his head, is going, I can't believe he's eating this. I can't. I, that's, that was sacrifice to Aphrodite. Are you kidding me? How could Ulysses eat that? I, I, he's our pastor. Can't believe this guy. And then another sister's next to him going, well, I, I, know, it's, I know it's not bad. It's not like Aphrodite is real, but I just feel really uncomfortable with this. Paul's saying, is that a good situation to be in for the sake of you filling your stomach with meat, with steak? Is that worth it? Is that really worth it in the name of freedom? Paul's saying that's not worth it. That's not worth it. Why be denounced as you give thanks? There's no point in that. And that's how we should be thinking. Um, you know, I, I know steak and all that. It's kind of distant. Let's use a modern day example. Let's use drinking, right? And I, I feel okay picking on drinking. I know drinking, oh, Christians, I care so much about drinking. And I'll pick on drinking. I feel okay picking on drinking because I don't think drinking is wrong. I will have a glass of wine once in a while at a restaurant or 
maybe at home, I'm, I'm personally okay with it, in moderation, never getting drunk, I'm okay with that. But if, if, if I were at a restaurant and I were thinking, oh, I'd like to order a drink, but I'm there with a, some brothers and sisters and I know that, that this brother over here feels like drinking is wrong. And I know that that sister over there just feels uncomfortable with it. Why would I want to go and order a drink and enjoy that, my little Moscow mule, so, so delightful on a summer day? Look at these beautiful mint leaves in here. And at the same time, my brother's going, I can't believe he's doing that right now. And that sister over there is going, I feel really uncomfortable here. You know, this is just weird. You know, it's, uh, is, that, is that worth it? Is that, Paul's saying, that's, that's really immature. That's not loving. That's not loving in the name of freedom. Even if you, Ulysses, you know there's nothing wrong with drinking. Oh, it can make a cheerful heart. I can thank God for my drink, but not in that setting. Don't do that. That is not loving. It's not worth it. So Paul here, in these final verses, he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. What is Paul saying here as he, as he concludes this whole section about meat sacrificed to idols? He's saying in everything, this should be how we think. This should be the rule. The rule of love should be the rule in our hearts in everything that we do. Not just about what is lawful. Not just about what is legally permitted. Not just what, about what is a technically not sin and that's not wrong. And hey, that's a gray area and there's disagreement about that. That's not how we judge things. Just do it because it's not sin. No. Whatever you do, eat or drink, you do it to the glory of God. What does it mean to live for the glory of God in everything you do? It means not giving offense. Give no offense to others. That's a part of living for the glory of God. We think living for the glory of God may be like, oh, I'm going to worship, raising up my hands, and I'm going to just be so excited and ruhaha for the Lord and just give God glory in all of my life. Paul says if you want to do that, you cannot separate that out from how you treat your brother and your sister. It is intricately connected, intimately connected. When you offend them, when you hurt their conscience, you do not give glory to God. That is an unglorifying way to live. So this, this, these three chapters, 8, 9, 10, it's, it's so important. It's about this concept of freedom. And, and as Christians in our modern-day society, I know we love our freedom. We live in such an independent society. Western society tends to be so independent, uh, self-independently focused as well, that, that I can do whatever I want. We kind of carry that into, into our life and the way that we live, and we love our freedoms. But Paul is saying that's not what Christian life is just about, about your freedom. It is about love. Theologian Gordon Fee, he said this, for the Corinthians, exousia, exousia is the 
word freedom there in the Greek. For the Corinthians, exousia meant the right to act in freedom as they saw fit. For Paul, it meant the right to become slave of all. Or as here, the right to benefit and build up others in the body. For him, nothing else is genuine exousia. Nothing else is genuine freedom. You know, that's the ironic thing, right? Paul, he said, I will become a Jew to the Jews. I will become a Gentile to the Gentiles. I will lay down my rights. I will become weak to the weak. I will become all things to all men that I might save some. Paul was willing to lay down all of his rights and become slave of all. The slave of all people. But you know what? That made Paul the freest man in Corinth. It made him the freest man in Corinth because he understood what true Christian freedom means. Again, the theologian Anthony Thistleton, he said, you are not thereby compromising your freedom by entering into the bondage of other scruples. Quite the reverse. You are using your freedom to help the other and to serve the gospel. To do otherwise would return you into bondage to your own personal desire and preferences. Now, that's, that, listen to that one. Let me say that one more time. To do otherwise would return you into bondage to your own personal desires and preferences. Brothers and sisters, we cannot get freedom all wrong and completely reverse it. Freedom, contrary to the American spirit, freedom is not about doing whatever you want. Freedom is about being free from the selfishness and self-centeredness that used to rule over you when you were a slave to sin. But now, through the power of the Holy Spirit that is within you and has liberated you, freedom means that you have the power to say no to your selfishness and to live as a servant of all, to love others. You have the power to be free to lay down all of your rights, to love others, to build them up, to encourage them. That is true freedom. Following your flesh and doing whatever you want and saying, nobody can tell me nothing. That's not freedom. That's actually slavery to your old sinful nature. The self-centeredness that once ruled you. True freedom means being able to walk in the life that the Holy Spirit has enabled us to live, which is one of love, of thoughtfulness, of doing good to our brothers and sisters. Let me give a you know, a few applications of this. What does this mean for us? Especially when eating meat is, is something that is, you know, idols and temples. It could just be so foreign. Let me give you a few applications of this. One, first, societally. There are societal applications to this. Paul said, all things are lawful. Doesn't mean it's good or helpful or beneficial to others. We could, we could apply that societally. All things are legal. Just because something is legal and it's been passed as a law in California or in our, in our country doesn't mean that it's good 
or helpful for other people. For example, more and more in our country, there is a movement to um, legalize recreational drugs. Recreational drugs. Now, just because it's legal doesn't mean it's helpful or beneficial to do drugs. And now, I know that I'm not trying to get into the whole argument, is it addictive, is it not, this or that. There's a whole, uh, that's not my point. My point is that even if something is legal, it may not be helpful or beneficial to others if you do it. Like, let's say there are people out there, oh, marijuana is not addictive. Let's say people say that. I, I don't know. There's a lot of debate about that. But if I were to tell you, hey, man, you know, being a pastor, it's real stressful. Sunday, man, I'm beat afterwards. You, you try coming up here and saying something fresh for 40 minutes every Sunday. Man, it's hard. It's hard. Now I'm just really, really griping. Right? It's hard. It's not easy. So, you know, afterwards, when I'm done, I go home and I smoke weed. That's what I do. I relax myself and I smoke some weed and I just, I keep, you know, I keep it in the allowable amounts. It's legal, right? Now, there may be a couple of you in here go, it's okay. It's legal. Yeah. Maybe, you know, there may be a couple of you in here like that. But I am confident there are a lot of you in here that would go, oh, okay. I, you know, I, I don't know about that, right? I, I think that's true. We could do a blind poll or something. I think that's true. At least I, I believe that. So because of that, it doesn't matter if it's legal or not. That's not the point. The point is how it would affect you, how it would affect others. And there's certainly many people in, in, in the kingdom of God who would find that very troubling or would consider that sinful. And I need to consider that. So let me just say this for the record. I don't, I don't do that. <laughs> I don't do that. I just generally have a cheerful disposition. That's all. <laughs> I'm just a happy person. Or, or even within, within the church. Like I, I used alcohol before and I picked on it. And again, you know, like... Um, this is what our church does. Not every church may do this, but we in our church, I ask people, hey, don't bring any alcohol to any official church events. Let's not do that. Again, you're, you're free to drink at home. You're free to drink socially, whatever. You know, I do. I do sometimes. But let's, let's not bring it in. Let's not have, you know, community group and beer, right? Let's not, let's not do that. You see, you're laughing. That proves my point. That proves my point, right? It, it, because... No matter what your view on alcohol, and as for me, I think the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and the wheat and the barley and the hops. It belongs to God. I can, I can thank God for, for a nice glass of wine, right? And I can do that. But because there are lots of different feelings about this within the church, for the sake of those who may have different views or feelings or backgrounds or experiences, let's not have any wine or alcohol when we officially gather in church events or meetings for their sake, for the sake of others. I, I was, uh, this other pastor once told me that he went to France for vacation once and he went to church there and on a Sunday, it was a Sunday, so he found a local church to go to and, um, you know, it was a beautiful service and he was being a little bit cheeky, I guess, and it was France, right? You know, like wine, you know, such a huge part of culture and everything there and he goes up to the pastor afterwards, he goes, oh, this is such a beautiful, beautiful service here in France and stuff. And, you know, wouldn't it be nice to have some wine out here in the lobby afterwards and people can just get to know him, mingle and fellowship? And, and he said, the pastor said to him, oh, no, 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 no. We would never do that. 
that would be inappropriate. In France, right? You know, like, and I think it just, it just says something about this issue in the church around the world in different places and the importance of being sensitive to that. Now, that's where we are today. That's what we do now. Could that change? Possibly, but that's where we are right now in trying to be sensitive to others around us. Now, in our personal lives as well, this, this should affect our decisions, the decisions that we make too. Do we, do we live our life in a way, are we thoughtful about the freedoms that we have and how they affect others around us? I, I, I remember back in, um, when I was in New York at the church I, I used to go to, you know, like a, a big thing in church, especially if your service is in the morning, is after church, you go out to eat together. Tons of people do that. A lot of you do that, right? It's a wonderful thing, wonderful time to go out, go to a local restaurant, and just, just continue to have conversation and relationship, and it's, it's a wonderful thing. So in New York, we just scatter to different restaurants and eat. But then one thing we, we realized is that, you know, as we began to reach out more to the people in our neighborhood, and that included um, people who are much lower income, uh, there were homeless in our, in our area, there were people um, involved in gang activity. There are all sorts of stuff going on in the neighborhood where we are. It was, it was quite a mixed place. And, and we had been reaching out to the people from the neighborhood to come into the church. And now our church was predominantly white collar, right? Most people were, were white collar and made a, a decent income and, you know, could afford going out to eat lunch afterwards. But we began to realize that there were certain people that whenever service ended, and people started going to lunch, they would opt out. And they would just not go. And it's like, oh, okay, maybe, that's fine. You don't want to go with us. It's okay, maybe next time. But really what we get, began to realize is that it was because, you know, for somebody, a, a banker or, or, you know, whoever working in Manhattan, going out and spending $10, $10 back then, now like $15 on lunch, no big deal. But for some of these people, that was a significant portion. That, that, wasn't, that wasn't cheap. And to do that every Sunday would have been financially difficult for them. It would have been financially difficult. Hey, sure, he's going, oh, well, we'll treat you. But not everybody wants a handout every single week. Not everybody would necessarily want that. And the question that we had to face was, are we, are we willing to give up that right of ours to go out and spend 15 bucks on lunch every Sunday because maybe it was stumbling or it, was, it wasn't building others up. Can you imagine? Maybe somebody in that position, maybe there's somebody in that position in our church, people like that here as well, who would say, oh, well, every Sunday, church ends, fellowship ends when lunch begins. That's when I need to leave. That's when I need to go home and just make my sandwich. I can't, I can't do this with them. And... That, that, does that build up? Does that, I, I think the challenge there in that situation is, what would it mean to give up our rights? Would it mean maybe having more meals in people's homes and just cooking together or something like that? And now, that seems like a kind of silly little thing, but I think these are the things that kind of push on us a little bit more. What are you willing to do in your lifestyle for the sake of those around you? What are you willing to change? Would you give up eating out, having nice meals and for the sake of others? 
A lot of, a lot of um, these, these principles from the Bible seem like, oh, that makes sense. That's really good. But then we, once it comes to us and affects our own life, there's a spiritual nimbyism can come in, right? Not in my backyard, right? Not, oh, not with me, like, you know, not in that way. Or we look the other way. This is, these are the principles here. Paul, Paul is saying, to, for the sake of other people being built up and not torn down, for the sake of people not getting the wrong idea about the gospel, about Christianity, I will become a servant of all. Every one of my rights. I, I will never eat meat again if it stumbles people. I will lay down those rights because that is the law of love. And love has never changed. That's true freedom. When Paul doesn't eat the meat, he is so free. When you, when you go to a home and eat sandwiches instead of spending 15 bucks, 20 bucks on lunch, you're being so free. You're being so free in Christ because you're saying no to yourself and yes to loving others. Now, let me, let me um, uh, address this. Maybe there's some of you there who's saying, you know, Ulysses, that makes sense, right? We don't want to offend other people. We want to love them. But you know, there's just some people, Ulysses, I don't know if you, you probably don't know any of these people, but there's some people who are just always offended. You know what I'm talking about? They are always offended. And it doesn't matter what I do. What do you expect me to do, Ulysses? Might as well cater to every single weird, like, esoteric whim of this person. You expect me to live like that? I mean, that, that, that's crazy. It's so unreasonable. It, it, so, yeah, let me address that for a moment. Romans 14, you should read Romans 14 after this sermon because Paul ex- talks about this same topic and he goes into it more. And, and he says this, look, he says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Why? Because of the meat sacrificed to idols, right? Same issue. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, saying, oh, you should have knowledge. It's nothing. It's just meat. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Don't say, how dare you eat that? Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So Paul does say here in Romans 14, hey, don't, don't, don't go and judge your brother for eating that meat, okay? Don't judge him. It's not wrong. It's okay. So he's trying to, he's trying to provide some balance here. He's trying to say, hey, you should also know the scriptures, you should also know what is sin and what isn't. And, and if he wants to eat that meat, let him eat that meat, okay? Don't, don't be judgy about that. But later in chapter 14, he says, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. So here, here's the other side of the scale, right? So he's, on the one hand, he's saying, hey, you should know the scriptures. Don't judge them for eating the meat. But on the other hand, Paul's saying, but you know what? If they just can't get over that, if it just really bothers them, it's not worth it. Don't eat it. There, there are both of these things in play here. So, and, and, and I think this is how, these are the principles we need to apply. And, and um, I know it can get tricky. It can get tricky at times, right? But this is the principle that we need. So, Let's say for me, for me, I, I have personally decided I don't want to drive any type of car that may stumble people, okay? Especially because 
because I'm a pastor, right? If I drive a $150,000 car, you're like, oh, Ulysses, you're setting that bar real, real high there. Okay, $100,000 car, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but if I were to buy a car, I'd want to keep that in mind because if it's too nice, people may be stumbled. If it's too nice, people may say, oh, that pastor has his hand in the cookie jar of the church, you know, or something like that. So I want to be mindful of that. Now, so we have two cars. We have a 2010 Toyota Sienna. It's got over 100,000 miles on it. It drives great. Toyotas are amazing. Practically never have a problem with this car. I love it. I love minivans. I could drive it forever. I could drive it forever. I have no shame in driving a minivan. I love it. It's like a house on wheels. And we have a, a, a 2016 Mazda 3. Bought that when we got out here. $17,000. Great little car. Zoom, zoom, right? I get, I get around really well with it. And I feel comfortable. I feel comfortable with that, right? Now, if somebody were to come up to me and say, Ulysses, how can you drive a 2010 Toyota Sienna? How can you drive a Zoom Zoom Mazda? Like, don't you know that there are people in this world that are starving? They don't have a, have a car at all. You should sell your cars. You should walk. Now, now, I can use more walking. I could. I could use more walking. That might not be a bad, that bad of a thing. But in that case, I would feel comfortable saying to that person, no, that's, that's a bit too far. That's a bit too far there. I, I think based on our culture, based on our church, based on our society, I feel okay having my 2010 Toyota Sienna, my 2016 Mazda 3. I feel okay with that. I think you need to go read Romans 14 verses 1 through 4 a little bit more. I, I, would, I would feel comfortable with that, right? So this, is, this takes wisdom. It takes wisdom. It's not always clear. Some people will always complain about stuff, and, and we can't always cater to everything. But we can't do the, the opposite either and say, nobody can say nothing to me because of my freedom, because of my rights. Now, this, in the church as well, this last application here, this also applies to how we get along with other churches in Christendom. I mean, there are different tribes within evangelical Christianity, right? And, and sometimes we get into some nasty debates and arguments, and it, it doesn't look good. It gives God kind of a black eye through how we, how we have so much infighting. We fight over baptism. We fight over spiritual gifts. We fight over the role of women in the church. We fight over so many of these different things. And sometimes it just, it just looks really bad and vitriolic. Now, the principle here, how we apply this as well to those situations is that we approach brothers and sisters from a different tribe, from a different tradition, with humility. With humility, with, with respect, and with love. We can, we can have debates, but they should be respectful discussions, and that's totally fine. But we don't go in there trying to say, I have knowledge, you don't. What's wrong with you? That was the, the, the younger me, and maybe me now still tempted sometimes to go into situations, I just want to debate because I think I know what's right. I think I know the Bible. And how can you still believe that? But that's foolish. That's foolish. That's not loving. That doesn't build them up. Me coming in with that attitude. We need to be gracious, remembering that our brother, there are brothers and sisters. Uh, Meldenius, the German Lutheran, Lutheran theologian of the early 17th century, you may know this quote. I think it says it so well. 
when he says how we are to treat one another as believers. In essentials, unity. The core things. Jesus is the Son of God, sinless, died for us. We are sinners. No other way to salvation except through Christ. We must have unity over those things. In non-essentials, liberty. You want to baptize that way? You have the freedom to do that. You believe that about spiritual gifts? You have the freedom to do that. We disagree. We agree to disagree, and we let each other follow our convictions, your own convictions of what you think the scriptures are saying. Somebody's right and somebody's wrong, but we'll sort it out in heaven. It's okay. We'll figure it out there. But in all things, charity. In all things, charity. So this means, for me, as somebody who does pray in tongues, believes in the spiritual gift of tongues, if I go into a cessationist church and I go visit them, I'm not going to be out there, yeah, da, 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 like in tongues. Like, let's, let's, you know, say, you guys are so not spirit-filled. You guys don't know. You're ignoring this wonderful gift God gave you. What's wrong with you? No, I'm not going to do that. That's, that's, that's disrespectful. That's saying, I got knowledge. You don't. What's wrong with you? You're weak. I wouldn't do that. I was uh, on a, down in Peru before talking to rural pastors there. And I was just talking with them. They told me, oh, yeah, Christians should never get tattoos. I said, really? Why? I, I, I know a lot of people have tattoos back home. I didn't say that, but why? He says, oh, because all the, the people, the, those people, the drunks, the sinners, all those, those people out there, they just all have tattoos. And, and so for them, it was very, very culturally, it was very bothersome. It was so closely affiliated. I was like, oh, if I ever came here to pastor or to be a church planter, I would never get a tattoo. I wouldn't say, no, you need to have knowledge. I would understand the culture and what's happening in their views there. That's how we, are need, we need to treat each other as well between different Christian tribes and families. Lastly, let me close with this. I'll invite the worship team up at this time. Let me close with this. Paul says here at the end, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is, this is what it comes down to here. Paul says, look, imitate me. Imitate me. Follow my example in surrendering my rights for the sake of others, for the sake of the gospel. Because you know what? It's not about me. At the end of the day, I am following the example of Jesus. That's what I'm doing. This is what our Lord Jesus did for us. And now let me just read this last passage to you from Romans 15. This is a part of the whole chapter 14 that I read earlier about eating food and rights and stuff like that. He said this, We who are strong, who have knowledge and whatnot, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. There are those words again, for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. What is Paul saying there? Why? Why should we give up our rights? Why should we do it if I think it's because they don't have knowledge and they should know better? Why should I give up my rights for the sake of others? Paul says, because that's what Jesus did for you. He connects this very directly. That's what Jesus did for you. The reproaches of those who reproached you 
fell on me. The judgment that should have come upon you because of your sin, because of your weakness, because you didn't know any better, it fell on Jesus. I took your weakness. I took your failings. I took your sin. I took it upon me to serve you. Paul's saying that's what Jesus did. And if you want to be like Christ, you will do the same. Yeah, maybe they should know better. Maybe you think they don't have knowledge. Maybe you think they're weak for that view. But when you take that upon yourself and you serve them, not insisting on your quote-unquote freedom, you're doing what Christ did for you. That is loving. That is what it means to truly be free. Free of your self-centeredness, free of your independence, to be a slave of all. That is true freedom from sin. Let's stand together. Let's take a moment right now as we respond to this message. Um, I want to, I just want you to take a moment and think, is there anything in your life right now where you have freedom and you have so much freedom, you have so much freedom, but is there anything in your life right now that perhaps is not helpful to people in your life? Maybe it's not the best example for them. Or maybe it's something that is okay to do, but it bothers them. It's just not good for building up. Or, or maybe simply you're not used to thinking this way, and I don't blame you being in America and, and our independent spirit here about our rights. Maybe your prayer would be, Lord, help me to become more sensitive to the people around me. Help me, God, to be truly free, to be one who loves and lives by the law of love. I don't want to be so black and white. I was the one being legalistic by insisting on my rights. That's legalism. True freedom is being sensitive to those around me. Let's take a couple of moments right now and can we just bring our hearts before the Lord? Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, this is one of the key components towards true Christian maturity. This is a part of it. You cannot be a mature Christian if you don't understand this. And if you think, I just, I'm going to do what I want to do. Don't, tell, don't talk to me about how I live. That's not maturity. That's selfishness. This is a path to maturity. Thinking of and loving others laying down your life for them. Let's take a couple moments right now. Let's just bring our hearts before the Lord. Can we do that? And just pray for this mind of Christ to fill us. Let's pray for that together right now.